0: Hello, Internet friend. I'm David Ravel, and this is Valueside. For all of our podcasts, articles, visit Valueside.com. Today, excessive speculation? What about Regulation T? Well, today, financial leverage is simply the way we do business. Most of us don't give it a second thought. When we go to the store, we pull out the plastic and pay for our goods and items. Little do we realize that we have just made a loan with our credit card company. The dollars we're using to pay are part of a revolving loan with our Visa, MasterCard, or other credit provider. Now, a majority of these purchases are made this way. And if you've noticed, many businesses encourage you to pay by credit. Wall Street hopes you heat up your cards as you spend, spend, spend during this holiday season. You're borrowing on those little plastic cards directly translates into more retail sales. Now this time of the year is the most critical sales period, the time when most retailers will make much of their income. Black Friday, that massive sales day after Thanksgiving, was initially projected to be when shops and stores broke into solid profitability. Sales were pure profit from here on until the end of the year. So grab your favorite credit card, get out there, and help those retail stores and shops. But Americans haven't always looked at credit card spending this way. There was a time, and indeed an entire generation, that looked at credit cards like Dracula sees garlic or the cross. Absolute anathema, which should be used only in the last resort. I know, I lived through at least part of those times. Now, in 1972, when I began my career as a stockbroker, credit was considered a danger, a financial obstacle, a short stop on the way to financial ruin. It was just 33 years since the end of the Great Depression, and most of the senior executives and economic leaders in this country had lived through that depression. They had seen the far side of the mountain, the time when credit had turned to dust for many. This was the World War I generation, and most were now in their 60s and 70s, just like today's baby boomers. Many had progressed to head of agencies and corporations. I worked for EF Hutton & Company, where the regional partner, Gordon Crary, was part of that generation. And my graduate professor, Charlie McGulrick, was likewise of the same group. The heads of the Securities and Exchange Commission, Bradford Cook, and the New York Stock Exchange, Robert Hack, All had come from the same group. All had seen the dark and gloomy times in American history when, for a decade, Americans were unsure of where their next meal might come from or how they would meet their financial obligations. Everyone I met from that generation blamed their financial woes on leverage. My grandparents, who were also members of the World War I generation, went even further, Sing not just an economic sin, but a spiritual one as well. Like most families of the time, they knew of at least one relative whom the 1929 stock market crash ruined. My grandmother's uncle filled that spot for us. At one time a wealthy man, he lived the remainder of his life under the generosity of his extended family, relatives who would never dream of taking a loan from the bank. He was another example of Shakespeare's admonishment, neither a borrower nor a lender be. And it fits perfectly with the policies at E.F. Hutton. They, too, felt that excessive credit was a danger that both the firm and the individual stockbroker should avoid. As a cub broker, I was often admonished to evaluate a client to determine whether we should permit them to trade on margin. Should the brokerage firm lend part of the money to invest? Hutton remembered that during the 1929 crash, the margin accounts cost brokerage houses dearly. When stock purchased on margin declines, the client must bring in additional funds. But if they can't, the brokerage house bears the loss. In the 1929 crash, this was the principal way many brokerage firms failed. Too many margin calls. Because of their strict margin lending rules, I had precious few margin accounts at EF Hutton, and those that I did have went first through extensive reviews by my manager and me. These tight lending standards were perfectly consistent with the entire industry. Remember, that industry executives and regulators had lived through the Depression. They each had a gut-level aversion to financial leverage. Ask them what caused the crash. And you'll get much the same answer, financial leverage. People who borrowed too much. Brokerage firms extended too much credit, which could not be repaid when the stocks declined. 1929, you see, was just the culmination of a cycle of ever-expanding credit. Today, we know that time as the Roaring Twenties, a time of bootleg gin, speakeasies, and flappers. It was a time when the nation went on a binge of party-hardy, During the 20s, rules were meant to be broken. The nation learned that prohibition was not serious. It might have been the law, but it was acknowledged more in its violation than anything else. The same was doubly true in the investment world. Wave a copy of your latest monthly stock statement before a banker, and they'd gladly lend you money. Go to a couple of different bankers, and you'd likely get a couple of loans, all on the same collateral. On top of the free-flowing money, there were also bucket shops where you were never sure if the bucket shop executed your order or if the bucket shop did not. The bucket shop said it had your stocks, but in the end, you had to take their word for it. The brokerage business was as fast and loose as the average floating crap game. (laughs) The lack of regulation and the easy loans created an explosive combination that was bound to blow up eventually, and blow up it did in 1929. Now, after the crash, most Americans were in shock. How could such a relatively small, esoteric business cause the failure of the entire financial system? Back then, few were involved in the investment business. Outside of Manhattan, few people had even heard of it, much less followed the stock market. My grandmother's uncle was one of those very few. None of the modern investment products, like mutual funds, money market funds, index funds, or annuities, existed back then. Investing was mainly a stock or bond proposition. Now, to even the most casual observer, it quickly became that this business required massive reform, and for one moment in time, our legislators rose to the occasion, In a series of law, namely the securities laws of 1933 and 1934, Congress reformed what it meant to be a securities investment. Gone were all those bucket shops, back-of-the-envelope certificates. Under the 1933 Act, there were procedures that ensured that there was a genuine business behind every stock certificate, and that the officers and professionals who reported the financial results were providing truthful and honest annual and quarterly reports. Moreover, any violation, especially fraud, was met with federal criminal prosecution. In 1934 came the reform of the exchanges. Bucket shops are now gone, and now the exchanges themselves had to qualify, as well as all the broker-dealers who were members. By the 1940s, the reformers went on to go after the notorious pool operators. Those fat cat operators who band together and drove the price of stocks higher or lower to mislead the public, that they could make millions by manipulating stock prices. Now the crooks on Wall Street had to head for the hills. Congress and the newly created Securities and Exchange Commission were cleaning up the street for the first time in a generation. It has been now 90 years since those reforms were made in the U.S. securities markets and the fairest, most productive markets in the world. Unfortunately, many 1930s reforms sit idled, forgotten, and unused today. The great irony is that we live in a time that resembles the roaring 20s of the 20th century, but many trader friends tell me that they believe markets are currently being manipulated. Indeed, Some of the high-frequency traders and their activities raise questions. In the options market, there are often questions about massive purchases or sales that look to be an effort to influence the underlying stocks or other assets. We'll deal with those topics in future articles, but for now, let's examine how we've abandoned our chief tool in fighting excess financial leverage. So let's return to 1972 My first year as a broker. It was an extraordinary year. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closed above 1,000 for the first time in history. It was a monumental event, as the magic 1,000 had become a significant hurdle. Once before, in 1966, the Dow had touched 1,000 but could not close above that level. In fact, markets fell back into a new bear phase over the next several months. So it meant a lot when markets again touched a 1,000 and this time were able to remain above it. So put yourself in the seat of the market regulators. And remember back then, it was likely that you had also been part of the World War I generation, the generation that lived through the Depression. If markets are reaching new all-time highs, there's a strong likelihood that investors are becoming overleveraged. As part of those significant reforms of the 30s, the federal reserve was the regulator that oversaw the amount of leverage brokers could provide their clients under regulation t the fed could raise or lower the percentage of lending for investments when the market hit that new high a thousand on the dow the fed increased the initial margin rate from 50 to 65% now throughout the 40s 50s and 60s The ability to set the margin lending rate, Reg T, had been one of the Fed's most effective methods in reining in excess speculation. And once again, Reg T worked like a charm this time, lowering speculation just enough so that the markets did not overheat. By raising that initial margin, the Fed prevented those runaway, parabolic markets that often presage a significant crash. In other words, it was a market that looked exactly like 1929, but the Fed headed it off. The fact that we did not have one of those skyrocketing speculative spikes in 1972 tells me that the Fed was right on the money. They prevented that excess speculation, just as Reg T was designed to do. Now, as a sidebar. The Fed received tremendous, entirely unwarranted criticism for raising the initial margin rate. Critics claimed that because the Fed boosted rates, a bear market ensued. It argues that margin interest rates are the principal driver of stock performance. I disagree. To set the record straight, let's look at some of the other factors that intervened in causing the bear market. In 1973, Middle East countries cut off America's oil causing prices at the gas pump to skyrocket. It was the OPEC oil embargo. In the early 1970s also, the U.S. was still fighting the war in Vietnam, which increased the financial burden and slowed the domestic economy. During the mid-70s, President Nixon was forced to resign in disgrace, throwing the country into political turmoil. Also, inflation began to expand, Throwing the nation into a period of stagflation, a deadly combination of low productivity and high inflation. At least it seems probable to me that these macro factors had a far more lasting effect on the stock market than did initial margin rates. So, in conclusion, regrettably the Fed utilized its Reg T authority only once more since then. In 1974, They lowered the initial margin lending rate to 50% and never moved it again. To this day, Reg T has sat on the shelf gathering dust. Just think of how many times a slight lifting of Reg T might have cooled an overheated market. With an actively managed Reg T, the Fed might have dampened some of the euphoria leading up to the 2008 Great Financial Crisis. As for those issues raised by my trading buddies, the modern virtual pools and the high-frequency traders, raising their reg-T rate might cool them a little bit. It might not stop their behavior. We may need some new reform to do that. But it might curtail some of the excesses we're seeing today. Isn't it odd? In a time when the Federal Reserve have pledged to fight inflation wherever they find it, there is one asset class, stocks that remain outside the Federal Reserve's oversight. Maybe we need to remind Chairman Jerome Powell that Regulation T still works. And that's today's ValueSide. For all of our articles and podcasts, visit valueside.com. I'm David Revell. ValueSide is independently written and researched. The views expressed are strictly my own.